It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do, that's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. I take full responsibility for everything this government has been doing in tackling coronavirus, and I'm very proud of our record. Tens of thousands of our citizens have died avoidably. These were unnecessary deaths because of systematic government misconduct. With good British common sense, we will continue to defeat this virus and take this country forward. There were a lot of green shoots of opportunity on the horizon. You know, we've been held down on forest floor for far too long, and we will reach that canopy again. Hello, you're listening to Bloomberg Westminster, your daily guide to British politics. I'm Sebastian Salik. Good afternoon, I'm Caroline Hepke. Well, Seb, swings and roundabouts then today. The UK has become the first Western country to roll out a coronavirus vaccine. Were you watching 90-year-old Margaret Keenan? I was. Yes, uh, she was very pleased. She looked relieved, I think is in a word, to get her injection at the University Hospital in Coventry this morning. Yeah, so the NHS prioritising people over the age of 80. Tens of thousands expected to get vaccinated in the coming days. The Prime Minister striking perhaps a slightly cautious note. He hailed it as a huge step forwards in the fight against the coronavirus, but also warned that the pandemic wasn't over. It's amazing to see the vaccine coming out. It's amazing to see this tremendous shot in the arm for the entire nation. But we can't afford to relax now. No, indeed. And, Seb, you have to remember, 61,000 people, more than that, died from uh, COVID-19. So on the one hand, huge optimism that perhaps the end is in sight, but it's still a long way off. And the Prime Minister has other worries, doesn't he? He's going to be heading to Brussels within days for these urgent Brexit talks with European Commission President Ursula von der Leyen. That's amid growing fears on both sides, actually, that negotiations will fail. Here's the MEP, Philippe Lambert, who was speaking to Bloomberg earlier less than uh, than uh, even so uh, so my money is now on having no deal i know that uh, it was a prime minister uh, uh, who wanted to uh, to make a last ditch attempt but then again that that was all already uh, the scenario on saturday so they were the negotiators were given 48 hours more and the result after 48 hours is that uh, uh, nothing moved an inch so pessimism and some in Brussels. I'm seeing lines dropping here from uh, Ursula von der Leyen's spokesperson saying no date has yet been set for that conversation with Boris Johnson. We watched that with interest. Plenty to think about then. Joining us now to talk about all of it is James Daly. He is the Conservative MP for Bury North. James, good to have you on what an interesting day. Uh, I, I mean, this is, after all, a negotiation. Both sides are going to have to give ground here. What would you accept a compromise on on the EU side, on the UK side here. Well, I think that the, the the government have acted reasonably throughout this process, and I think you know, as we all accept, most of the, the things that we need to be in place for this deal are in place. Um, I find the attitude of the MEP slightly curious that you've just played, in that if there is a no deal, if 
um, President Macron vetoed the deal, then French fishermen are going to have no access to British waters, and that's going to be absolutely catastrophic for the industry in France. So I think that's quite uh, um, the, 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 the way that the negotiations are being played out. Really, I think from the European side, are not reasonable. They're not realistic, and importantly, they still do not recognise the result of the, of the of the referendum. The referendum was about sovereignty, about the ability of the United Kingdom to make their own decisions, to adapt policies with flexibility and nuance, to make sure that we have a competitive environment to protect businesses, to create new businesses, and to create jobs. So, mm. I think the the I think the United Kingdom's negotiating position has been reasonable, has been consistent. And I think with just a little bit of give from the European side, I think we can get over the line here for a deal that's going to benefit everyone. Um, I find your answer interesting. I think it's sort of symptomatic of the problem that I see on the UK side. Focusing on fishermen is surely a foolish distraction. They contribute to the economy effectively the equivalent of a rounding error. They employ, what, 20,000 fishermen? This is a cover for the UK um, in order to get concessions out of the EU. Are we in danger of sacrificing on the big points, the rules of the game, state aid level playing field, uh, in order to talk about fishing? Well, I find that um, point of view uh, um, an extremely... Uh, curious way. I mean, if if we if you are taking the position of President Macron or or the European Commission, if you are part of the sort of that, that's their political stance in respect of this matter. As I've said to you, I don't think it is an unreasonable request that for a sovereign country to have the power to set their own trade policy in a way that provides you know, the people with this in this country with the best chance of prosperity, with jobs, with new businesses. A level playing field is a curious concept in that we would all in a perfect world want to live in a sort of semi-socialist view of life, but we're all restricted in how we can, um, in, in our decision-making and policy-making by central rules. But if a country wants to be, has a different view, has a different way that they want to, um, they want to take trade policy, a different way they want to uh, govern their people with the consent of those people... I don't think that should be restricted yeah. because of a, a general sense that we should all be abiding by the same rules of the same social rule within Europe. That was the point of the referendum. And in terms of saying about fishing, yes, fishing is a you know is a relatively small um, portion of the economy, but I think it's an extremely uh, important uh, part of this debate. And I certainly want to vote to protect fishermen's interests. I think that the government has given ground in respect of quotas for the European Union, and I don't mm. think there's any. I don't think there is right. any. Um, any issue here that the government want to do a deal on fishing but at, the, uh, at this uh, moment in time i think if you tell if you you correct me if i'm wrong i think france have 80 percent of the quota within british waters well it would seem strange that you would accept you would expect a british government to continue to accept that position going forward well what if this does break apart what if no deal happens how worried should your constituents be about that i think that we are going to see there's clearly going to be some some uh should we say financial turbulence for a short period of time? But I think that what we should look at is that this is this is a situation where the growth that, we, that I think all all economists uh, agree on this: the growth that we perhaps would have seen will not be at the level that we would uh, we would have expected, and that's not something that anybody can welcome. Um, so I think there will be a short-term uh, impact upon the economy, but I think with um, the policies 
and the support this government can put in place to, to my constituents and businesses in my constituencies, I think we will work in the long term going forward and therefore there's very little to worry about from the no deal. But, but why willingly make things worse? We're in the worst recession for 300 years already. Why compound that and hurt the people that you've been fighting for all year? Um, you see, that's a very curious argument to make. So what, what you're effectively saying is that the British government shouldn't respect a referendum result, shouldn't respect the mandate upon which we were elected less than 12 months ago, and should just ignore the issue of sovereignty. Brexit is based upon... I'm not saying a, don't deliver Brexit, I'm saying get no, a deal. What you're saying, the argument you're putting forward essentially is, is cave into every European demand and then and be glad that the Europeans have deigned to do an agreement with us. I love the European Union. I want the European to thrive and succeed, like I want the Euro- like I want the, the United Kingdom to thrive and succeed. Yeah. The wish to have a free, a wide-ranging free trade policy that allows trade between individual countries and the mutual, um, the, the mutual stance that we want to support each other in not only trade and security and all the other things that are very important doesn't seem to me to be a, a, a bad or unrealistic viewpoint. The British government do not yeah. set out from these negotiations to hurt anybody. They are not saying that we are going to come and, you know, come and cause some, some major problems to the European Union. All they are saying is that we want to have, and we want you to respect the outcome of a referendum, where the people of this country said that sovereignty should remain here and decision-making should remain here. Decision-making yeah. cannot be linked to decisions made in a different country or a different political bloc like the European Union. No, sure, but also one has to be realistic in terms of the size of the economic might that Britain has versus the EU, which is significantly larger. And in a trade negotiation, that's kind of what counts. But let me play you this bit to see what you have to say about Alex uh, Reiter. is the director of the Centre for Brexit Studies who told Bloomberg Westminster last Friday that the UK is not in a strong negotiating position. Have a listen. We are facing a scenario essentially whereby if we reach a deal with the EU of the sort the government claim they want, then over the next 15 years that would make us 5.5% worse off than we otherwise would have been. If we had no deal with the EU, then over the next 15 years we would be 7.5% worse off than we otherwise would have been. And the same analysis suggested in the unlikely event mm. we ever had a trade agreement with the United States, it would only boost our GDP over that same period in effect by 0.16%. Yeah, I mean, the UK is in a very weak negotiating position. And that's sort of my point. It, it's not a short-term hit to the UK economy, and it's significantly larger than it would be to the EU. At least that is what Alex Reiter is, is saying. What's your response, James? Well, David? I have no idea who, who... I'm sure he's a very eminent gentleman, mm-hmm. but I, have no, uh, I haven't seen the evidence base upon which that claim is made. I suspect that that gentleman takes a very staunch remain position But if you come at this purely from the point of view, during the referendum campaign, the people of this country were told by uh, various politicians and various people that there would be a severe economic hit as a result of Brexit. And the people of this country voted for Brexit. They were told the same thing during the general election uh, 12 months ago, and they voted for Brexit. People voted for Brexit in the realisation that it was not going to be, um, it would be a different path which we had trodden previously. But I have enough confidence in their entrepreneurialism and in the decisions of the British government to be able to sculpt trade and uh, business and taxation policy to make this country the most competitive country in the world. I want to see a flourishing of manufacturing. I want to see a flourishing of new industries in the north and things that haven't happened during the period of our membership of the European Union. Yeah. And I, I say that I don't accept the argument that you're putting forward, which is 
well, the European Union, in your view, are a stronger political bloc. Therefore, we should just basically do what no, they No, no, just larger economically. I, I'm only talking in terms of pure economics that in a trade deal well, it's, even, it's, even it's in larger. Of that, I think in terms of the people who elected me, if they, if they heard me say that even in their economic terms, as a result of this, we need to give concessions which are not in, in the national interest yeah. because of that. Mm. My constituents simply wouldn't accept that. Mm. And, and quite yeah. frankly, I wouldn't be elected again if I took that view and um, absolutely wouldn't be, uh, wouldn't deserve to be elected. You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. Let's have a look at what else is making news in the world of politics. We start with this ongoing investigation in Scotland. The SNP chief executive, Peter Morell, is going to be questioned by MSPs who are looking into the government's botched handling of complaints against Alex Salmond, the former SNP leader. So Morell, who's also the husband, follow me here, of the current First Minister, Nicola Sturgeon, is just the latest witness in this inquiry. He's likely to be pressed about meetings that Sturgeon held with Salmond in the home of Nicola Sturgeon and in uh, and Peter Morell. Uh, lots of questions to be asked about that. And the SNP chief also facing questions over text messages he sent about the police investigation of Salmon. So this inquiry was all set up to review the government's handling of internal complaints against Alex Salmond after he raised a legal challenge against this investigation process. So there's a lot mm. to follow north of the border. Complicated stuff as well. Yeah, absolutely. But it's a real tussle, isn't it, uh, within the yeah. SNP about how this was dealt with. Um, look, this on the lottery, the minimum age to play the natural the national lottery is um, going to rise from 16 to 18 in a bid to shut down a possible gateway to problem gambling for younger people. So the Culture Secretary, Oliver Dowden, has announced this move overnight as part of a, quote, major and wide-ranging review of the 2005 Gambling Act. The former Labour MP, uh, Michael Duggar, now Chief Executive of the Betting and Gaming Council, urged the government to focus on problem gamblers instead. I mean, this is an issue that's come up a number of times, Seb, around clamping down on gambling in the UK. But I think it's come to the fore because there's been such a huge surge in online gambling because of the pandemic and the lockdown. Yeah, you had the crackdown, didn't you, on fixed odd bettings terminals Mm. and maximum stakes for those a little while back. The question here, I suppose, really, is how much of a gateway is the national lottery really (laughs) into more serious gambling? I know the kids who were running off to spend their pocket money in the casinos when I was young were definitely not doing the lottery. Um, And then here's another way you can spend your money, splashing out online, uh, as people did last month as the second lockdown in England came into force. So this is a Barclay card survey that found that online grocery sales shot up by 97.4% in November from a year earlier. Overall Consumer spending fell by almost 2%, led by a drop in sales of fuel and non-essential items. Lots of excitement around new consoles, video game releases, Black Friday, those extended discounts that feels longer and longer every year, uh, all contributed to the surge in online sales. And supermarkets saw a jump of almost 20% as we all started to stock up early on Christmas supplies. The rule this year is it's never too early. 
Yes, absolutely. I've got the uh, fairy lights up already. And of course, it is an historic day today, isn't it, uh, for the the UK? Mm. Because the NHS has launched the biggest immunisation campaign in its history. And the first person to be injected was 90-year-old Margaret Keenan at University Hospital Coventry. So there you go. You can hear the photo op there. She uh, sat patiently and uh, got the injection. The elderly, of course, are first in line for this vaccine uh, with tens of thousands expected to be vaccinated in the coming days. This will, of course, have a massive impact on care homes where in many cases people have not been able to see their relatives uh, for months. So joining us now is Professor Martin Green, who's Chief Executive of Care England, the largest representative body for independent social care services in the UK. So I'm very curious to see, um, Professor Green, if you are as excited as everybody else is in the UK about this rollout. What will it mean for care homes? Well, Caroline, I'm very excited by it. You know, care homes suffered terribly during the start of this pandemic. And tragically, well over 20,000 people died in care homes. And I think that this uh, new vaccine should hopefully hold out a bit of hope that we can start to get back to normal. But I should also remind people that this is not going to happen overnight. You know, we have 400,000 plus people who live in care homes. And so everybody needs two shots of the vaccine. So this isn't going to happen overnight, but it's certainly extremely good news. And it does offer the hope of getting a bit back to normal. Well, Martin, talk, me, talk to me about the uh, challenges of this vaccine in particular. The Pfizer and BioNTech vaccine needs to be stored at below 70 degrees, just one of the little quirks that it has. How are care homes of overcoming those logistical challenges to get this to the people who need it? Well, you're right. This vaccine is very difficult to transport. And of course, the NHS will have to find mechanisms to be able to transport it at that very low temperature. We should also recognise that once you've transported it, you then have to make sure that it's used within a a reasonable period of time. And given that some care homes may have 70, uh, 80 residents, this is going to be a major logistical operation. And, of course, we've got to do that twice. So you've got to do it then uh, 21 days later. You've got to do it again. So this Mm. is by no means going to be easy. And I think when the other vaccine gets approval, that appears to be much easier to transport. And it's my view that probably the second vaccine, the Oxford vaccine, will be the one that will make the biggest impact because it will be able to be out uh, into care homes at scale and it is much easier to administer. Yes, um, but what I would say also is, yes, it's a challenge, and yet this could end up being the easier part of this because it's a captive audience, right? People in care homes, you know, are easily, much more easily identifiable and and, um, sort of injectable, I suppose, than than people in the wider population where you have to gather them. So, So actually, this could well be the easier phase. The benefits are clear. Um, and yet at the same time, is it going to change anything for Christmas or January? I and mean, how long is this going to be before it actually makes a difference to people with family and care homes? Well, I think we're looking to the first quarter of next year. And I think uh, the reality is 
we're not that far from Christmas now. And given that you have to have two doses of the vaccine, um, I don't think it's going to be a game changer for Christmas, unfortunately. But I do think that we can see a bit of light at the end of the tunnel. And as I say, if we get the vaccine from the Oxford vaccine, which will be hopefully easier to administer, that will be um, hopefully one of the things that will push the vaccine programme on. But I think, Caroline, you were very right to talk about how difficult it is to make sure that we get to those people who are in the community. Care homes are a big challenge, but people living in the community who might be vulnerable, who, for example, might have a home care package because they need it, they're going to be very difficult to reach as well. So I don't think we should underestimate the enormity of the task of getting everybody to the point where they're able to be vaccinated. And that certainly won't be happening in terms of the general population well into next year. Are you, Martin, worried about the efficacy of this among older people? I was looking at some research and the argument that crops up time and time again is that the over 65s that were used in the trials aren't necessarily representative of the wider group who are generally much frailer. Well, I am worried about that on some levels, but I think we should remind ourselves that vaccines have been used for a long time and are very, um, very effective. And in terms of this vaccine, I think we have a stark choice, which is, yes, there might be some questions about whether or not very frail people were used in the trial. But one thing we do know is that very frail people are at a very high risk of dying from COVID. So it is about balancing some of those issues and making sure that it is the uh, it is the vaccine that's administered because I do believe that will provide protection and we have seen tragically what the implications of getting COVID are for very frail older people. Mm. This is also the cruelty of this disease, isn't it? That one has to ask the question about whether it is not more sensible to prioritise, you know, one group above another. We started with very Uh, elderly um, people, very frail people in the UK. But there is an argument, isn't there, to prioritise people who are working age, let's say, so that we can get the economy going again. I mean, this has been a a, a health crisis and a huge economic crisis. Also, what's your view? Well, my view is we should make this a decision which is about where the vaccine can have the most impact. We certainly know that older people are statistically much more likely to die from this vaccine from this uh, virus. So that is why they've been prioritised for the vaccine. And if you look at the numbers of people who are younger who have been affected by this, they're significantly fewer than older people. So older people are the main priority because they are the main group of people who are affected by the virus. And what about the phenomenon that we saw play out with HPV, where you get people dying of unrelated causes and it's all coincidental after having had a vaccine, but then it boosts anti-vaxxer sentiment. Is that something that you see possibly happening here? Well, I think there's a lot of misinformation about vaccines about. And what I would say is, you know, the bottom line is that if you get a vaccine, you're going to not only protect yourself, but possibly protect others as well. So I think there is a lot of misinformation. And part of the problem of living in a digital age is that everybody's getting access to information which is completely unfiltered and in some cases completely untrue. So I remind myself whenever I see this misinformation that we have had vaccines for a long time and they have been transformational in terms of our public health. You know, I lived in Uganda for a while and there were people there who saw their children dying of measles. They would have killed to be able to make the choice of having a vaccine. And I think people here sometimes take vaccines for granted, but they are absolutely 
game-changing in terms of our lives. Uh, and I think this vaccine will be in a similar space. Mm. Uh, and just lastly, then, a thought on the government. I mean, the criticism has been a, a, over the past few months that the government handled this badly and didn't prioritise the elderly and care homes. Are they getting it right now? I think, you know, we should acknowledge that this was an unprecedented public health emergency. And I think at the start of it, we were all floundering. Certainly, the government did not prioritise people in care homes. But of course, um, you know, the, the message at the start of this was about prioritising the NHS. And I think we should have learned a lesson from this, which is that the people at most risk should be the ones prioritised. And it's not about organisations or institutions. This is about how we make sure that we protect people. And one of the things that was not clear at the start of this was that mm. older people, particularly those in care homes, were at most risk and they should have been a top priority. Bloomberg Westminster. Listen weekdays at noon on DAB Digital Radio in London. You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.